1: Hi, Louise. I can't believe it. We're here for the conclusion of this wonderful book by A.M. Holmes, The Mistress's Daughter. I
0: know. Like when any good book comes to an end, it just feels like such a loss. Mm-hmm. It is
1: a loss. It's it's like the, the end I think of that's a why we dragged show. it out
0: so long, you know, <laughs> is it because we could have finished it a few weeks ago, but it was just yeah. savoring her
1: writing and kudos to yeah. the writing. I mean, really, it's so yeah, well written.
0: We really... Along with just respecting you as a person we know, we just adore your writing. Yeah. If you're listening. um, I'm (laughs) high.
1: So the last two little sections of this, the first one's called like an episode of LA law, which I, I love the titles. I mean, yeah. And she does a whole guessing if she were to get her biological father into court, in the deposition saying, are you my father? It's got some great one-liners. It's very It's rich. an
0: imagined, but at the conclusion of that particular section, we don't know what she did. If in fact she sued him to get those DNA results yeah. or not.
1: No, it's very vague. I think on purpose, probably.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sure. right? Yeah.
1: It's kind of a long section for us to like, say what was said, but there's a lot of great. So are you her father? And do you have other children? Do you know if you have other children? T- I mean, just some of the stuff. Have, yes.
0: And are you, <laughs> were you still attracted to Mrs. Baum and her mother, you know, just getting really. Do you find yourself gradient.
1: to be a good father? I mean, yeah. <laughs> just all the questions that she's had about him. So it's a fun read, like almost a different part of the book. It's written a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. And then we get into the very last part. And this part made me cry. I don't yes, know. this was really touching. She talks about her adoptive
0: grandmother. I remember, you know, when I first had Becker and I heard that expression, grandparents and grandchildren connect so much because they have a common enemy, you know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I haven't heard that. That's funny. That is yeah. actually true.
0: <laughs> so I really was close to my adoptive grandmother, too. She died at 101.
1: I remember Uh you, you would talk about her and I was too. I'm named after her and that's Jack was very close to my mom, to my adopted mom, to his grandmother, the common enemy. I like that, Sarah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So this is really just about connecting, paying homage to her, Mm -hmm. but also thinking of narratives and growing up, she said she wasn't sure about whether or not she could absorb that family history We have talked about this a lot about how your family did a family tree, but you, and then your uncle said, no, you know, (laughs) part of it or whatever that was.
1: I had a red circle. (laughs) 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 There's a line here where I wrote, Oh, me and Sarah, I wrote both of us. She said exactly what you said. I was never sure about whether or not I could absorb the family history at family gatherings, great aunts and uncles around the world would pull their chairs in close and tell the stories and she absorbed it and it's her history, but not her family. And you get caught up in it because it's part of, I mean, like she said, they would sit around her grandmother's table. That's the title of this section. She had this table where everything took place and she is part of it and she's in the family. But when they talk about that, she felt, what was the word she used? Oh, we are your family. Believe me, my mother would say, I wanted to believe, but something felt off and inorganic. Mm-hmm. I like how she wrote that because you are part of it and you're laughing and you're, you're with everybody. You don't know any different. It's your family, but deep inside you're like, but not really. I mean, you know what adoptees know and don't know is a big thing, whether they voice it or not. I felt like I always had that inside.
0: Yes. Also, I thought it was interesting that her adoptive mother chose not to share about ams, you know, connecting with her biological family with the grandmother they didn't share that with no. the grandmother didn't the adopt her grandmother with whom she was very close wasn't privy to that information
1: yeah um, th-
0: like her mother deliberately kept it from her
1: yeah and she was the person she talked to the most and was with all her faculties and they were very mm-hmm. close and spoke all the time yeah i wonder she inherited
0: why. the table yeah which you know is kind of like a metaphor throughout this chapter mm-hmm, too And there were a few things that I did. Well, her grandmother died when she was 99. Yeah. I like where she says, I see now that I'm a product of each of my family narratives, some more than others. But in the end, it is all four threads that twist and rub against one another, the fusion and friction combining to make me who I am and what I am. And not only am I a product of these four narratives, I am also influenced by another narrative, the story of what it is to be the adopted one the chosen one, the outsider brought in. Mm-mm.
1: God, so <laughs> I'm just absorbing that. I've read it and now that you say it, it's I feel like every adoptee is gonna go, okay, I need to read this book just for that. Mm-hmm. And
0: then it was the death of her grandmother that compelled mm-hmm. her to have a child of her own. It's so oh. interesting that her adoptive mother, of course, yeah. You could just hear lie. this twinge of I don't know what word i'm seeking but just a twinge of something when she's like what is an adoption good enough for you you know <laughs> i knew you're gonna
1: highlight that. not not
0: she was getting, having a problem
1: getting pregnant and that's the question what adoption's right. not good enough for you it's like well no it's connection i think it's connection but she didn't have the words either to say
0: or just like a need she said she felt compelled to try her hardest to issue a biological echo to see myself before myself writ large and small and as fully related as one can ever be Mm -hmm. again like people who don't grow up with their biology who've never had their biology it's so for some of us i'm not saying all adoptees but for many of us that is a strong urge to Mm -hmm. have that connection the strongest biological connection
1: and what's interesting about it it's the strongest urge and yet we all have the fear that we have the abandonment and fear part of being close to other people so it's, well, yeah. it's it, so big right it's like he says that i had
0: motherhood was something that terrified me i have a great fear of attachment and an equally constant fear of loss i'm not sure if this is true for everyone but for me the ghost of the dead brother still and always looms yeah yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny because I bet you when she was writing this book, she didn't really know any other adoptees, and there wasn't social media, and there wasn't, yeah, a big conversation out there about it.
1: When we spoke to her, she said it was one of the first times she had had that kind of conversation. Right, that's right. Yeah, with adoptees, and you and I are lucky we have them all the time now. But yeah, <laughs> but not everybody does. I have friends I know who don't, and that's why these podcasts, and it's so important. To do the reading, the memoirs, and read out—you know—even if you're an adoptee out there and you don't know how you feel—reading other people's memoirs really helps. I mean, for me, it gives words to things that I'm like always searching for.
0: Mm-hmm. I think I want to go back and listen to her episode again. Me too. After af- after
1: this, let's do it this week because next yes. week we'll do our wrap up and so. Yes,
0: that's okay. So let me—I just wanted to read the last line of the book. That's the best. I uh, know yeah, because you know, if listeners, if you remember. AM was found. She didn't seek. So did I choose to be found? No. Do I regret it? No, I couldn't not know. Yeah. I couldn't not know.
1: I'm the same. Look at, I put huge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. This is. Just... Okay. So
0: that said we, next mm-hmm. week we're just going to do kind of a, I don't know how to put it like a unwinding and just regrouping we're going to regroup before we head on to our next book another yeah. adopting
1: memoir it'll be great another
0: adopting memoir we're going to talk about this we're going to just sort of recap am's book talk about where we're going
1: mm-hmm. yeah and that's it and we have a great guest coming oh we have a really i think everyone's going to love her this is a big story actually yeah <laughs> excited all right me too see, all you, right, in see you in a minute
0: you we just wanted to say thank you to our new sponsor, S12F. Between him and our Patreons, we are now weekly, which is so exciting. We've been trying to reach this goal for quite some time. So, thank you to everybody who's been a part of this and for helping getting us here. And if you too want to be a Patreon and be part of this, you can go to patreon.com and search for Adoption the Making of Me. But really, we just wanted to say thank you to everybody for making this possible and to continue making it possible. Good morning. Excited to introduce today's guest. She found us, I guess, when we first started early on from who knows who shouted us out in a New York Times comment section. I'm just hearing that and excited that that, that that happened. I comment often in the New York Times. So anyway... I'm going to introduce Emily Sonagra. Thank you for being here, Emily. Thank you. For-
2: Thank you and welcome. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Coming to us from Portugal.
2: Yes. Can't wait from to the- hear how that happened. <laughs> well, you will come to hear that it's all part of the adoption saga. <laughs> <laughs> you can never, never, it never goes away. Never goes away. So. Anyway, I'm really happy to be here. And I also want to say that I love the podcast. And one of the things that I do really love about it is your friendship. Because Uh. I feel like it really, to me, it gives me, it's like a role model for friendship for adoptees, because it is not easy to have friends sometimes. And I was thinking once, wow, you know, I really have very few friends. I have very few long-term good friends that are still around, you know, that I could work with like you two work together. So it's nice to see. Well,
1: thank you. That's nice. We work hard on it, you know, on our friendship and care about each other a lot. So thank you.
2: Yeah. Maybe I need an adoptee friend. That's
1: right. Well, now you have <laughs> some.
0: Shouldn't I, be one, hard to find from the baby scoop era. There's that's plenty right. out there. Right.
2: And now here's here's one and two right here yeah. for you. Right. There should be a whole like, e-harmony section. Especially <laughs> <laughs> if you be... have a
0: guest room in Portugal.
2: <laughs> this,
1: exactly. This could be our new... Uh, I'll be your friend. <laughs> Sarah and I are really good friends oh. when we want to Portugal. <laughs> uh, well, thank you for saying that. That's, yeah. that's nice.
2: So I bet you want to hear my story. We yes. do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. That's what I heard. Well, I've been telling this story about 8 million times. And in fact, I'm about ready to be done with this story. I feel like, why? <laughs> A fly caught on a piece of flypaper with this story. So I was told I was adopted when I was three and a half by my mother, because they were going to adopt my little sister. And I think back on that as my first memory, of course, three and a half. There's another mother out there somewhere. We loved you so much. She loved you so much. That's why she gave you away the usual. And I think It was probably, of course, at that time that the world split in two, I split in two, and everything that Betty Jean Lifton says and and Nancy Verrier says about the ghosts and, you know, all that is true. But to me also, there was this sense of this other possibility, you know, like there was this other, like there was this portal to this other world, this parallel world. So I grew up, like any adoptee, wondering who my birth mother was, searching in the mirror for clues. My mother was very open about it. We talked a lot about what we thought might have happened, who this person might have been. And where were you? I was in Boston. I'm going to go back and sort of fill in that once I find my birth mother. So I grew up right outside of Boston in the suburbs. And my parents were great. They adopted another little girl three and a half years after I was born. I was adopted at four months. I had spent four months in foster care for why, I don't know. I mean, I have my ideas, but my mom and dad had gotten married in 1950 and they wanted to have six kids and they tried and tried and tried. My mother kept everything. She kept packs of letters that she wrote to the OBGYN, whose name was Dr. Rock, who was one of the people that invented the birth control pill, which I find so ironic.
1: That is ironic.
2: Yeah. So, And they had a very difficult time adopting because they were a mixed marriage, which meant Unitarian and Catholic.
1: (laughs) Oh my gosh. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Why? Things have changed.
2: Because (laughs) my father was Catholic and that sort of, trumped every other religion you know was only the only real religion they had to adopt a catholic baby but they couldn't go to catholic charities because my mother was unitarian so they weren't just going to give a catholic baby to a half catholic family so they had to kind of search i know they had to search around and they went all over the place you know they went to germany they were on vacation they went to germany searching for a catholic baby and lo and behold When they were in Europe on vacation, they worked through the Boston Children's Service Association, which was a very, I think, sort of upscale adoption agency. And it's another ironic thing. As any good adoptee, I was a great snoop, you know, and so I went searching for any kind of clue about anything. It didn't matter. And I found a letter from my grandfather to my father when they first started thinking about adopting. And he was telling them it's probably going to be impossible to adopt as this some people you may try in Massachusetts, but it's probably going to be really hard because and he was a pediatrician because people don't want to start off an adoption and then have it fall through or have it not work out. And I was thinking, why? Because the baby isn't Catholic. I mean, that's and bizarre what does that mean. And, but he told them it's really important to go to a first rate adoption agency so that you get a first rate child. Uh, and of course, you know, you don't awesome. like
1: those second rate children.
2: <laughs> I know, yeah, you know, but I'm probably reading it when I was 13, oh, feeling far from first rate, you know. That's <laughs> I mean, right. Plus, I'm like sneaking around in my parents' drawers. You know? <laughs> uh, and I just remember just thinking, but I'm not first rate. You know, of course I'm not. They didn't get the first rate child. They got the bad child. huh. <laughs> and so that just all these weird little things like that, that don't make any sense to us now at all. Anyway, so my mom was really open about it. We always were aware sort of both of us of this other family out there, you know, this other woman out there sort of lurking. And
1: I like that she was open about it.
2: Yeah. She really, she really wanted to do the right thing. And my dad, you know, once when I was getting on his case about, you know, when I was older and why he went to church all the time. And I was like, well, what do you even do? Do you pray? And he said, yes, I do. And I said, well, like, what do you pray about? And he said, well, I pray for you and mom and Debbie, my sister, and I pray for your birth parents. They were really, really, really gracious upstanding, really great. Of course, everybody has their problems. (laughs) But my mother, I think, as she told me later, that she never could have dealt with having an open adoption. I think she felt the whole time very illegitimate. She was really like, as she put it, when they went to the Boston Children's Service Association and picked me up, they got a call from the social worker saying that they had a little baby. And the baby, of course, was four months old at that perfect baby stage, like a Gerber baby. Yeah. And they went to get the baby and they just took the baby home in the car, you know, and she had the baby on her lap going up home. And she said, I was the very, this is her famous line was, I was the very nervous mother of a very demure little baby. And she always used to say that she thought that I was in foster care. I must have been in foster care with a big family because I learned how to smile. (laughs) (laughs) So this goes back to why I think they put me in foster care to make me as appealing as possible. But anyway, so there's some
0: talk out in adoptee world about that era that babies were put on phenobarb, I too was in foster care and to calm the babies down and make sure they were suitable for adoption. Yeah. My goodness.
2: Well, I have all my health records. I had, it seemed like I had more ear infections and things like that, which I think was weird because I was only, I was teeny. But anyway, I'll go back to that. So when I started asking more and more questions, she gave me all the information they had. What they basically had was this piece of paper that described me. And it was as if it had been written on Madison Avenue, you know, like describing. Oh yeah.
1: It was like a sales pitch or something.
2: Like an American girl doll, you know, Mm a sales it's on the top, it said, this little girl was born May 10th, 1958 in Brookline, Massachusetts. Oh, I was, well, I don't, I don't know that yet. Well, I don't know where I was born yet. I find all that out when I meet my birth mother. Anyway, and it goes on talking about, she's been, she has pleasing features, clear white skin, dark hair, blue eyes, oh. and I was like, I'm snow white. And <laughs> And, you know, the family decided that they wanted the baby to be baptized Roman Catholic and then come to find out the family, i.e. my birth mother, did not have any desire for me to be baptized Roman Catholic. But it was like this thing that I had to be baptized Roman Catholic. And then it went on to describe the mother and the father in the most glowing terms, you know, oh. self-made, handsome, tall, well-built, high went to schools of high academic standards, many cultural interests. And so it took me like 40 years to finally realize, why would these kind of people ever right. give up Maybe baby? You know, and it took me another 50 years or however, you know, it took me forever until after I found her to realize that this wasn't truth because I just held it like, you know, and I would go home and I put it in my journals and I took it everywhere with me, you know, where I, I moved all over the place, New York city, blah, blah, blah. It was as if it was a mirror, you know, it was as if it was a portal and I could somehow, you know, it's like your face, you're looking into the mirror, trying to find the answers in your own face. But of course you can't because you don't really know what your face looks like. You know what I mean? You just sort of have this face, but it's all imagination. And I would look at this piece of paper and read it over and over and over and over again. I mean, kept it very close to my heart. Anyway, so I was an actress because that's a great way to sort of obsessive compulsively <laughs> work through rejection and a belonging over and over and over again. <laughs> and it's also a great way, if you don't know who you are, to be a lot of different people. And so I did that in New York City for my 20s. And then I decided that that was enough. I really needed to be real, but I had, how do I do that? I don't know, but I think acting and doing all the body work and doing the voice work. And I think that that really helped bring me into my body. So I ended up leaving and going to Gloucester, Massachusetts for no reason whatsoever.
1: I just lost. Are you just kind of said I'm no going to reason, Gloucester. Okay. None. Okay.
2: <laughs> I just decided that I went to Boston, my parents, you know, I didn't want to live with them. I ended up going to an audition, even though I told myself I never wanted to act again. I went to an audition, I got the part. The guy that was directing the play was in a play at the Gloucester stage company. So I went to see him there and I was like, wow, I I think I had been to Gloucester once to the beach. It's an old fishing community, you know, it's really a working town. And I was walking around thinking, wow, what is this place? I mean, it was really, it was something to me and then i ended up finding a notice on a bulletin board at the last stop variety <laughs> when needing somebody needed a roommate so i called the number and my life was about clues i was just following the clues and i like i saw the notice for the for the ad for the audition for the play yeah. you know, on a bulletin board these are, these are days where things were stuck <laughs> Stuck in wood along the way, and then I saw this notice in the on the bulletin board of the last stop variety. I called her up. She said, "Oh yeah, sure. Well, I'm not going to be there this weekend, but the door's unlocked. You can stay there. You know, we'd never met." And I was like, "Wow, Toto, we're not in (laughs) (laughs) right.
1: You're in Gloucester now.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So I ended up living in this sail loft overlooking the harbor. I mean, it was an apartment too, but and then. I met this guy who lived across the street and he was a fisherman, a commercial fisherman in Gloucester. And very soon after I met him, oh, one thing I forgot, we were sort of dating. And in one time he told me, well, I can't have children. And I thought, well, why are you telling me this? You know, I'm, and then he said, I, you know, my wife, I, we were married before I was married before and she has four kids and I went to the doctor and I'm never going to be able to have kids. And I guess he was trying to tell me this, right? If, if so, you know, if we got serious, well, the first time we ended up having sex, I got pregnant. I barely knew him. And I mean, I had known him about, I guess months. he was wrong. He <laughs> was Wrong. But even after we had our first daughter, we went to see, cause I wanted to have more kids. And he went to the doctor we were talking to, took him aside and said, are you sure? Are you sure she's your child? Oh. Because he was, had so little sperm. And so there I was an unwed mother, you know, I, I mean, I, they was sort of, okay, my turn. And we've decided to have the baby, keep the baby be with this man, even though we were so totally not together at all. I mean, we were, you know, it's some karmic thing or something. Anyway, we ended up having two more children. But right after my first daughter, Dominique, was born, of course, I decided I wanted to find my birth mother, like many other adoptees. So it was very easy. I contacted an organization called Adoption Connection. I was told never to utter that word, those words to anybody, because in those days they did illegal things to find. It was in Massachusetts. You had to open oh. records. And so I was under no circumstances supposed to tell my birth mother that I had used them. You know, it's just say, oh, I always knew your name, all this kind of makeup lies. So they had me write a letter it was a form letter. I filled in the blanks <laughs> and sorry. It's like, uh, and then this happened and then this happened and this happened, but I want to get to the real story, yeah. which of course, <laughs> course is what really happens after you find. My yes. Birth yes. And you have to put it all together. You think that, Oh, I'm going to find my birth parents and everybody else in the world says, Oh, well you've all your questions have been answered. Right. right?
1: It's a magical I'm thing. I'm so
2: glad you have. Complete. What is the word? Closure. Closure. So that I can feel whole. Now, you know, and you can move on. Yeah. And now you can move on. And I'm like, and it's just sort of taken me 30 years later to now to realize, whoa, wait a minute. I was just completely shattered by it. And not that there was anything horrible. It's just, there was no closure. And anyway, it's up to us. To make the closure, obviously, yeah. because there's not, I don't really think there's anything that will fill up that hole, that chasm of mm-hmm. not having the bonding. And I was thinking to myself, yes, I've had many, many opportunities with my adoptive parents, and I was lucky. I'm grateful. But one opportunity I didn't have and I can never replace is that bond with the mother. And it's really, and it comes up over and over and over again, where suddenly I just kind of feel like I'm flailing, you know, and I'm just beginning now to realize, oh, that's kind of that out of body experience. Me me
1: too. I feel like I'm just figuring that out when I go into that state, what that is.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, it's just really weird how insidious, is that the word, or how it surprises you and takes on so many different forms. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Anyway, so I ended up writing my birth mother this form letter, because God knows what I was supposed to say to her. I sent a picture of myself with my one-year-old baby. And then it went to the wrong address. Then I got another address. It was right around the corner from where I had lived in New York City. And I thought, oh, my God, you know, I probably passed her a million times on the bus. And then she had one of her friends call me. Her name was Jane. And the friend's name also was Jane. And so we, the friend was very like, well, how does she know who you are? If it's true, what do you want? All that kind of stuff, which surprised me because, of course, I didn't want anything. And then I read her my little piece of paper, <laughs> thinking that, of course, this would be, oh. the, you know, she would recognize this. And of course, it was just no information that she had really given them. It was just like this total made up thing. That's so- yes. She had gone to a college of high academic standards. She didn't know the father all that well. So she just sort of plugged in the man that she was dating while she was pregnant with me. So the story with her was, she was a writer. She went to Radcliffe. She got pregnant August of right before her senior year. She borrowed $700 from a good friend and gave it to an abortionist and went to the abortionist and thought she had had an abortion. <gasps> However, she had not. Who knows why? She what kind the of-
1: heck happened there? That's creepy.
2: No, I think he was just a big fake and she was wow. very naive. So she went off thinking mm. that she had an abortion and then suddenly she still wasn't feeling well. She ran into a friend of hers in the hallway. somehow had heard that they were in the same situation. This friend had gone to Cuba where abortions were legal and had had an abortion. and was trying to commiserate with Jane. And Jane said, what blood? There was no blood. And then, so Jane, it was too late. By the time she finally realized that she was pregnant still, she went home to St. Louis. Aren't one of you from St. Louis? I was
0: born there, yes.
2: (laughs) Uh, She went home to St. Louis and told her parents, her mother took to her room, you know, they just completely just didn't deal with her. And she said, Never mind, i'm I can handle it myself. And she hid the pregnancy her whole senior year at Radcliffe and she moved off campus. She took care of everything. The baby, I was born three days. She took her final exams, and three days later she had the baby. And then two weeks later, she graduated. And of course, there's pictures that I have of her and her dad at graduation. And I said to her, well, weren't you still like oozing various liquids? (laughs) She said, yes. And she went on with her life. You were born in? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I was born at the Brookline. Brookline. No, I was born at the Salvation Army Hospital for Unwed Mothers in Brookline, Massachusetts. And so I can't believe
1: all she had to do by herself. They're just kind of like, okay, handle it.
2: I can't either. I mean, now I feel I'm so furious at her parents for abandoning her. And she just kind of doesn't understand. She said, well, you don't understand daddy. They had to move and they had to get another job and blah, blah, blah. And I say, you were by yourself. And I mean, I can't imagine. no. You know, I mean, I just had recently a granddaughter and to have my daughter be by herself. It's just inconceivable. Finish
1: up your classes, have graduation, go have a baby. And then
2: the next year she got married to the man that she was having an affair with while she was getting bigger and bigger, which to me is kind of weird too. I said to her, well, didn't you and this guy ever think about Yes. Yeah, you, know, you were close. Didn't you think that oh there's a baby? Maybe we should get married and keep it or whatever. And she said, I don't know, ask him. Anyway, so there's a lot of stuff that is and I feel like I'm skipping over things.
0: Was she expecting to ever hear from you or was it a shock? No, 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 no she, she just never. compartmentalized that part of yeah, her life. And it in sounds fact, like. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And, and she would, she told me things like on my birthday, May 10th, there were times where it would just hit her, but no. And also, so after I met her, let me get back to sort of that. So then finally Jane called me and she called me a few days later and we, Talked and we decided to meet on Christmas Day, which was my daughter's birthday, is the 22nd. And we decided that she and I would fly down to New York from Boston on Christmas Day. And, you know, she told me she's a writer, she was a feminist, she is a feminist. I mean, she spent her whole life, she was a founding editor of Ms. Magazine. Yeah, she spent her whole life fighting so women could have access to reproductive rights. And I went to try to find her when I was 21 to the adoption agency. And they said, oh, I'm sorry, you, you, it's a closed adoption. You know, she, she didn't want to find you. So that's it. So I let it go until after my daughter was born. So I flew down with my daughter. I first, we went to visit my parents because God forbid You know, because I always throughout this whole thing wanted always to make sure that they knew that they were my real parents, which of course they are. But so we go to see them. I told my mother, I told her that I found my birth mother, that I'm going to see her. And it was one thing about the adoption agency, they were really big into making the background of the baby and the background of the adoptive parents match. So that I, the Catholic and Unitarian thing, the thing that was so funny is that Jane, my birth mother was raised Catholic. Her name is Jane O'Reilly. She's raised Catholic. She went to school for 12 years with the nuns. And the one thing she did not want was for this, the one thing she didn't care much about the baby. You know, I mean, it was like, get rid of it. But the one thing she didn't want it raised in a large Catholic family. (laughs) So she stressed her Unitarian grandmother. And so it was like, oh, look, we've got a Unitarian Catholic baby and a Unitarian Catholic adoptive parent. So it was like such a, mat. it was a horizontal adoption. You know, there was no moving up. It was like socioeconomically, educationally, religion, race. But still, I still had the fantasy. You know, it took me 20 years before I suddenly realized, wait a minute. She wasn't poor. <laughs> you know. She wasn't a poor woman, you know, which is kind of the, the, the idea that there's only one reason why someone would give up a baby is because they can't take care of it. Mm. Well, no, that wasn't it at all. Of course not. She was, they were perfectly capable of taking care of a baby, but as I'm told over and over again by them, them meaning her and all her friends, you can't understand. It was the worst, most terrible thing that could ever happen to a girl of her class. And she would, well, anyway, so then I met her. We go there, we're in LaGuardia airport. And my idea of her is this young, (laughs) you know, it's this young, slim, attractive. You're still picturing the
1: the Radcliffe. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Yes, of course, because that's the fantasy, you know, yeah. and that's who you breathed into all this time. Anyway, and she there she was with a little stuffed lambie and a little stuffed skunk, a lamb, you know, stuffed animal lamb and a skunk and a bouquet of carnations. And she's standing there in a mink coat. She'd asked me the day before, she said, Do you
0: Carnations? Have a <laughs>
2: oh, I, I know. That's what I thought. No cards, something like that. Maybe they weren't carnations, but in my story, that's what they've become. You know, they bought at a Korean deli. Yeah, before. yeah. So she's in her mid and She's sort of this plump, middle-aged lady, and I just thought, oh my god. This isn't the woman that I would have picked out of a lineup it's my birth mother. You know how you are when you're your whole life, you're looking at every single person thinking, are you my birth mother? Are you my birth mother? Oh, do I look like her? And I didn't think we looked alike, anything. So I followed her along. And meanwhile, I have this baby and I brought the baby. I have a baby. And I was, I mean, you know, there's a lot of like, huh, yeah, I've got a baby. I would, the baby was a year old. I was nursing, right. I cloth, diapers. <laughs> you know, I was a serious mother. And the only thing I wanted to hear about from this woman was about my birth. And I said, what I really want to know about is my birth, because she was the only person that knew me when I was as small as my baby was. And she said, I'm sorry, I can't remember a thing. You know, I, I was knocked out. And I was knocked out for her son's birth, too, because she had a son five years later. Because I didn't want to remember the first one. I mean, she was knocked out. You know, there's nothing to, she remembers vaguely, they were wheeling her down the hall at the Salvation Army Hospital for Mothers. And she heard someone screaming. And she said to the nurse, who's that screaming? And the nurse, said, it's you.
1: Oh, she was so knocked she, out
2: like, really? Yeah. And she did tell the story. So she told me all the circumstances. She told me about the abortion. I mean, this is the first, the first night was Christmas and there were millions of people milling around looking at us, you know, all her friends came, I still was more New York City than I was Gloucester. I had lots of friends come still there to visit. but And we were all sitting around the dinner table and her son was there. He's five years younger than me and, and I'm next to him. And of course, the baby stole the show. And I said to him, oh, well, it must be really weird to all of a sudden find out you have a sister. And he said... Well, once an only child, always an only child.
1: <laughs> oh, well, that's <laughs> wow. And
2: of course I should, ouch, said, ouch. I should have said to him, which is what I realize now, once an adopted child, always an adopted child. And I make sure that I never, ever, ever, you know, I never call Jane my mother. And I always refer to her as your mother and stuff like that. She didn't have
0: any more kids after him?
2: No, just him. Yeah. Anyway, so I don't know. That's where, what else? I feel like I'm spinning out of control. No, you're Um, not.
0: Are you still in reunion? Are
2: you still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Even though I think I was, we were, one good thing about being, have this horizontal adoption was that we both kind of came from the same world. You know, we're both, we understood, we're same sort of political bent where she's a writer. I had just started writing when I met her. I had been involved, you know, as I told you, involved in theater, but like artistic interests. And she's fifteen years younger than my parents. My mother, so my mother went to Smith. Jane went to Radcliffe. My mother was 50, graduated in nineteen forty three. So the difference in terms of culture between nineteen forty three and nineteen fifty eight was remarkable. Yes, she has been in our life for thirty years. She, as my daughter put it, one of my daughters, she said we call her Granny Jane. Granny Jane, I feel like she's my grandmother, but I don't feel like she's your mother. And I feel like we That's really,
1: that's interesting.
2: Yeah, like it's never gone below to me that first, we have so much sort of in common that you can kind of skate along. But I feel like one of the things that makes me at this point furious is that I feel like nobody- not my mother, not my father, I sort of wouldn't expect them to. But I don't feel like everybody sort of feels like, well, isn't it wonderful? You know, everybody was really welcoming. But there was never once any, we're sorry, or how did it feel? Or any looking at the history of their family? Because I, I certainly, I mean, I don't believe that All of a sudden, somebody gives a baby away. I feel like there's some precedent sort of in the family, whatever it is. And just recently, because my daughter was going to have a baby, I started becoming, you know, I was really repulsed in a way, like I was really like, and it created so much, it created so much turmoil. Like I didn't know, I did not know how to deal with all these conflicting feelings But we still went on, and this is 30 years later.
0: Just kind of keeping things below the surface and
2: having sort of
0: a, yeah, I know.
2: It's almost as if there was nothing to, there was no reason to not be in contact. But, and yet sometimes I felt as if there was no reason to be in contact. And I feel like now I'm. it's funny because this is something that I felt like that was really important to talk about was, and yet now I'm having a difficult time sort of remembering what it was that I wanted to talk about. Yeah, it just kind of has gone along on the surface. And yet I go to, you know, we have some Thanksgivings together and I feel, I mean, a lot of that kind of thing. But
0: is it that you haven't gotten maybe what you feel you needed? in on a deeper level from absolutely
2: yeah but you know how do you i mean how do yeah, you say what how it do is you get that, that you, yeah you know you can't force you somebody to
0: to be able to have that capability especially like it is a different generation and that they maybe aren't super capable of everybody
2: oh. I wonder sometimes what they, their family, how they talk, like does she talk more intimately with her son? I'm not sure. Like I think about the way that I talk with my kids, you know, that we are really go into it. I think very really deeply. deep. And unfortunately they've had to deal with all this turmoil of the whole, like, I think they're really just tired, <laughs> tired of hearing about, adoption and birth mothers. And like, you know, one thing my daughter said right before she had her daughter was, I realized that the mother loomed big in our family. There was the negative mother, which was Jane, you know, there was whether it was the mother that wasn't, or the mother that was, you know, which was me. So like being a mother was this huge thing. And so she was trying to navigate her own relationship with being a mother, but that's further down the story, down the line. But I just wanted to also tell you about finding my birth father. Yeah, God is going to be
0: (laughs) waiting to find out.
2: So Jane and I became friends. I mean she's also she's very smart, funny, charming, and you kind of, you know, it's easy. We're both kind of talkative and that kind of stuff. Anyway, so I never thought about the birth father ever. And then after having a baby and realizing that this baby had a father <laughs> and that there they were having a relationship and they looked alike and, you know, they were, here he was a father. And suddenly I started thinking, gosh, and I was afraid to ask her because she hadn't brought up any information about him. In fact, she'd never wanted to think about him again. But finally I asked her on the phone and She said, well, I vaguely remember that he was in the, he was at Harvard. I vaguely remember that he was in the import export business and he lived on the North shore. No, he was in the fish business and he lived on the North shore. Uh And I said, oh, well, if he was at Harvard, he probably was in the import export business. He was, he lived in Manchester, which is this really nice town town. And then she said his name, and I don't even know whether I should say his name, but I think I'm going to. His name was Robert Barry Fisher, and I repeated it. My husband, or he he wasn't my husband yet, but he was sitting on the bed playing with my daughter, our daughter. He said Barry <sighs> Fisher, and meanwhile, Jane's <laughs> her little voice is going, "Oh my God, he's not Joe's you know mysterious father. Does he? Does he know him?" And <laughs> Anyway, it turned out that he was a Gloucester fisherman and that I had come to Gloucester for no reason at all, ended up getting pregnant, miraculously, from a man who could never have kids. With a
1: Gloucester fisherman.
2: With a Gloucester fisherman. Barry had grown, not only was he a Gloucester fisherman, but his family were founding fathers of Gloucester. They had come over in the 1600s and had been living in Gloucester. Their bones were in Gloucester. And he had since, he was good friends with Joe's uncle. Barry had since gone to the West Coast and started this huge fisheries in the West Coast. He had been really successful. He was really big in the fish industry. And he was really good friends with Joe's uncle. Joe's uncle was going to go out to the West Coast. Joe was my husband, but he ended up being killed. He went down in a fishing boat. So anyway, that's him. And so we went around the na- the waterfront talking to all his old friends. And they were all like, oh, Barry Fisher, you know, you don't <laughs> want to know him. And <laughs> And it was either like, you don't want to know him, he's an asshole, or else he's smart, really smart, you know. And then they would go on talking about all the things that he did in fishing. And then we saw pictures of him in the National Geographic, because he had started this joint venture with the Russians, Then, and also in National Fishermen and all this kind of stuff. And the fact that I was being living the life of a fisherman's wife was nothing that I had ever It's expected. completely
1: bizarre.
2: It's as bizarre. My, I know. And as my husband used to say, like a salmon, I came home to spawn. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I like your husband.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, then they, we're not married anymore. No, he's they, funny. <laughs> he sounds funny. He was funny, but so Joe ended up meeting him at this fish expo in Boston. But meanwhile, he had heard one of his good one of his friends, had called him up on the West Coast. Joe Sinagra's wife says you're her father. And, and so Joe <laughs> ends up seeing him at the fish expo and he comes up to him and he says, you're Joe Sinagra. And Joe Sinagra looks at him and says, you're Barry Fisher. You're my wife's father. And he was really like shaking and nervous. And he really wanted to meet me. He said he didn't know anything about me. He said he didn't know I was born. He was married at the time. He was four Mm. years older. He was on the vet bill, the veterans bill from the Korean War. And he was older than Jane to begin with. And he had a wife and a kid and probably another kid on the way. They had had some flirtation, as one of Jane's friends said, it was just horrible seeing them together in class. The electricity between them. They had this flirtation for two years. The electricity between them. I knew nothing good would come of it. <laughs> I just love the way people talk to yeah, you. Know. Nothing good. <laughs>
1: nothing good came of it. There you go.
2: So then he came out to meet me. First, he called me. Then he wrote me like these piles of um, resume. It was this outpouring. I think he was just so amazed that some of his flesh and blood, his issue had come to Gloucester and married this fisherman. And so then he came to meet me. I was so totally shocked by my feelings for him. They were the opposite of how I felt about Jane. Like I had this sort of visceral reaction, kind of like this to Jane. And I think it's all obvious for obvious reasons, you know, whatever happened in the womb, it's for whatever, you know, just this. And I think Nancy Verrier, I think everybody talks about it. You sort of have this Yeah, you know, you're just not, the intimacy is too scary. Mm
0: -hmm. He
2: was this big, macho guy, but in a nicely dressed way. (laughs) And he was, I mean, he was just like, he hugged me and I could feel him shaking. And then we had this, I mean, this, I was infatuated. We had this four days and he's taking me around Gloucester, showing me where his great, great grandfather lived, where he grew up, took me to the family burial ground, you know, held on to me and cried at the grave. And I'm going, I'm looking over my shoulder at Joe, like, what the fuck, you know, (laughs) like, what are you doing? And then we became, and he used to, he wrote me these long letters, love your father, talking about, I don't know how to be with a daughter. You're already, the the yoke is set. It just. I just felt like there was some kind of a connection there that I totally didn't expect. He had left school in the eighth grade, and when he was 15, he lied about his age, and he joined the Merchant Marines, and he transported Holocaust victims to Israel in the tail end of World War II. He was a Dory fisherman. Then he went into the Korean War, and he got all these medals, and he was wounded, and he did two tours of duty. And then when he was wounded again, he ended up getting his GED and then went to Harvard. And so he had this bigger than life story. And the way that, you know, I remember like him leaving and he kissed the top of my head and told, you know, and I just started writing and he was like, keep writing. And it was just this. I felt this validation. And I also felt this validation for this wacky decision I had made to be living with this guy who really, we had nothing in common. And it really (laughs) ended up making me stay in this myth much longer than I think Mm. I would have, you know, I would have left my husband earlier I was like married to the whole thing, to this whole idea that I had come back to spawn. Right. And the thing of it was that that first time when he was visiting, I said, so are you going to tell your wife? And he said, no. Yeah. And so I just thought, and he has two sons my age, you know, approximately. And there was only so far it could go if he's not going to tell his wife. And I even met her she came out to the East coast because he had given some money to a museum and there was this big fete for him. And I said, well, who are you going to say we are? Oh, you know, you're said so the kids, you're Joe Sinagra's son. And you, you know, we're working on fishery stuff together. And then there was this whole cocktail thing on the lawn and then we were all invited to go inside and people said, okay, family first, come on, Emily. <laughs> so oh. everybody in Gloucester knew who I was, but She may have known, right? It seems
0: weird
1: that it wouldn't have leaked out if everybody knew. Probably she knew, but it was the unspoken thing. Like, eh, we don't need to discuss it or something weird.
2: Well, I would have loved to have known her. She was an awesome woman. But he was the kind of man that I feel like definitely should have had a daughter, sort of to, you know, make him account for some things. So the weird (laughs) things about who you look like, like when I first met Jane, I... Didn't think I looked like her at all, except then I noticed the thumbs, and with Barry, my, I just—it was the eyebrows. And even there's a picture of his father on the wall of City Hall, and there are the eyebrows. It's just so weird. It's almost discombobulating because you're sort of used to yourself in one way, and then to all of a sudden have these body parts mm-hmm. flying off onto strangers you know it's, it's just really weird
1: what about not to interrupt but his two sons your half brothers they don't know about you
2: presumably not I've never I just Trust. there could have been a time where and they, oh the other thing you'll probably like this so we maintained this friendship we were both involved in the fisheries issues which kind of kept us moving along he on a national level us on a on a local level, you know, fisheries back to like, back to the farm type. So he would come out periodically and he, his health wasn't good. And, you know, at one point he had to have an operation and, and I couldn't call him and it was like being the other woman. Right. Right.
0: I was just thinking that when you were talking about the event, don't say who you are.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so anyway, and the last time I saw him, he and Joe and I were out to dinner and he was talking about his niece who lived up there in that area. I don't know if she lived in Gloucester. And he said, she doesn't look like us. She's a little Portuguese. She was adopted Portuguese. She was a little, you know, there are lots of Portuguese people in Gloucester, a lot of Portuguese fishermen and Sicilian fishermen. So he was making a little aspersion. And then he said, his brother had adopted two kids. One was this niece and then the other one, he said, oh, he never amounted to much. But it doesn't matter because he was adopted. Oh. And I looked at him and I said, that, what? I was adopted. I, I was adopted. And he said, yeah, I know. And then it was just like, Whoosh. you know, it was just slam curtain. <laughs> and it was- see, it's over. You know, it was just, I realized that he was really starring in his own movie. You know, and I feel like all the letters... All the stories were here I was sort of lapping them up. You know, I was this new vessel that he could pour all this stuff into, which is fine because I now have all these letters and I have all these stories and it's interesting, but there was no, I mean, he did say something like, and when I first met him, you know, I'm sorry. If I had known I would have done something, I don't know what I would have done. And I said, Yeah, you would have made sure she went to a a real abortionist, is what you would have done. You know, I mean, what would you have done? But so he, I just have not. And now I feel like we're all so old. Like there was one point 30 years ago where we all could have met, we would have had little kids. (laughs) But now I feel like our kids are the age I was when this all started happening. And also, my kids were like, Oh, uh, no, I can't. It's a lot to have another family. You yeah. know what I mean? It's a lot. And then, and also, I think I stalk them, though, of course. I definitely have a picture of the two boys on my computer and I stalk to see if she's still alive, the wife. And I did write them a letter, the boys once, saying that I was writing a book and that I wanted to talk to them about their father. And I never, re- heard back from them, but who knows if I even had the right address.
1: You had a little attempt there and then they didn't. Nothing. Yeah,
2: but I, I really can't, I don't know. I mean, it's just like, uh, when you know, was the last um, time
0: you had contact
2: with Barry? Then that night. And when that Barry, was how long ago? And then he died. Oh, so, he died. And he hadn't died. Had, any, <laughs> <laughs> he hadn't had any contact since he died. Okay. I didn't realize he had Surprising. died. Surprising. When, when was that? When did he die? Like 98, maybe? Mm -hmm. So I met Jane in 90. And then a year later, I met Barry. And then I think it was 98. I think my middle daughter was two. Yeah. And
1: you're still in contact with Jane, as you said.
2: Very much in contact. She's
1: Granny Jane. Yeah.
2: She's Granny Jane.
1: Your your daughter sounds quite wise with some of her comments. Just that she feels Um, like her grandmother, but not your mother. And
2: yeah, that was my middle daughter. All my three children are very wise. But let me tell you, what has really been hitting the fan for me is having a granddaughter. You talk about, oh, it's great. you are living in Portugal. <laughs> my oldest daughter has been sort of off for a long time. My middle daughter graduated from college in 2019. My son graduated from high school. And I decided I was going to move to Portugal. Why? I think I couldn't stand the empty nest.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. boy. Can I relate to that?
2: It was like, okay, uh, I, if you're going to leave, it, I think I'm leaving. You're leaving.
0: Mm-hmm. I have to escape.
2: You're leaving. Yeah. No, Emptiness I'm Emptiness
0: is horrible.
2: <laughs> I had so,
0: a horrible time with it.
2: Yeah. And periodically, like I go through my phone and I look at it and I look at all the layers of furniture and stuff that I've been giving away, selling over these past four years. I mean, I came to Portugal. I really have no idea what I was doing. I came to Portugal. I thought, oh, I thought it would be like going to Gloucester. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'd make some, I something would happen. No, really, it didn't resonate. I mean, there was, I kind of didn't make the friends that I thought I would make. I've yeah. just sort of been here by myself. And then I moved from one place and then I moved to another place. And then I went to France for five months. and then my daughter was having a baby and I could feel her pulling away. And I thought, well, she's just making, you know, she has to pull away from her mother in order to know how she wants to be a mother. And then I discovered that my three kids had their own WhatsApp group. Uh. And so I was, cause we all had a WhatsApp group, you know, the family and you know, I was trying to stay out of her way. She's my oldest child. Okay. So I think I leaned on her. I know I did too much with my emotional mayhem. And then I, meanwhile, I'm realizing that I'm just like beginning to spin out of control here and I don't know what I'm doing and I need a home, but I can't have a home. Having a home has always been really hard for me and you know i'm starting to panic a little bit cuz i'm not getting any younger and what am i doing and wouldn't it be great if i had a home <laughs> and then i ended up i was going to go up and see her and then she said no i just need space and i was like oh. and then she ended up writing me this kind of come to it it was like an intervention that's what yeah. it felt like it felt like i can't have you Around the baby, sort of like in paraphrase, you have to get it together. You have I want nothing more for you to be ha- happy. But it was kind of her saying, But I can't be responsible for your happiness anymore. And then I realized all three of them they were talking about their childhood, you know, and and there were things that happened with their father, but it was my the only thing I've always thought of with us and them is that it was like a shipwreck. And I almost feel like I kind of created unconsciously this shipwreck, <laughs> these situations, but I held on to my babies. You know, it was as, as if this situation is mad, but I'm keeping the babies. You know, it's right, like, right. I, and, and I was obsessed with having more babies, even though my husband couldn't have babies. It was like as close to immaculate conception, you know, as close to having babies on my own without a father as I could get. And he's been not involved at all since we split up, which was 15 years ago, I guess, when my son was six. I mean, it's hard. It was so, I just felt completely gutted. I really was thinking, I don't know. I didn't know how to be happy. I didn't know how to get my life together. I just, I realized that all these years, I really had nothing. I had nothing inside me. I just felt like I was, and you have kids, so you're busy and everything has to be done. And I was, I wasn't a total terrible mom. I've been a very good at advocating for them and giving them opportunities and stuff like that, but When it happened that I'm here by myself and I just realized that nothing was building. I had never really built a life for myself. And so what I've been thinking a lot about is how we abandon our children. Like for instance, my son is so mad at me that I moved to Europe (laughs) and he feels abandoned, but how we abandon our children, how it sneaks up on us. We think what I was not going to be like my mother's, I was not going, like my mother, my adopted mother did the best she could, but she wasn't intimate. I was going to be intimate. I was going to never abandon my children. I was going to be there for them. And yet it comes out the back door, you, the way you least expected. And I feel like I abandoned them by not understanding things like really boundaries, understanding how to feed myself, how to be my own person.
1: We hold on too tight. You know, you hold on too tight. I did.
2: Yeah. I hold on too tight, but I also, that sort of flailing, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of not knowing how to do something or like not being able to create a home or.
1: Maybe that hole, that emptiness inside. Yeah. Yeah. You said something about the shipwreck and the. I, I kind of you know. I used to lifeguard, but I picture like holding on to somebody while everyone's in chaos, yeah. and you, but you're still drowning. You're yeah. still dr- in a weird way.
2: Yeah. And just holding on to anything, but it's sort of like a. I feel as if it was you know if I was writing a novel, it would be like it's kind of this compulsion to create a situation where I had to kind of save the children even though it it shouldn't have been like that, that's not right. And it puts a lot of pressure on them. And it seems to me like all the things now, all the things that I did that I thought I was doing right, that were part of my impulse desire to be intimate with my children are the things that are kind of coming back and biting me now, you know, the things that they need some clarity about, you know, dysfunction, just complete dysfunction. Whereas, I didn't think I was being that dysfunctional. I thought I was being a good mom or whatever. But I mean, I knew there was some dysfunction, but I thought it was all fun. You know, I mean, I thought it was part of being intimate, not knowing. Anyway, it's it's hard to I've been thinking just a lot about it about how it's the gift that keeps on giving that gap, you know, that Mm -hmm. big Gap that is in ourselves that we have incorporated into our being that I think because of not bonding. And now, you know, I look at my granddaughter, and I mean, she just, you know, she's getting exactly what she's needing. It's just everything from mirroring, from attention. I mean, it's all just being infused into her. And there's that wonderful quote. I forget. Is it Woolen? I'm not sure. But that idea of the steadfast gaze of the mother, mm-hmm. and how, yeah, that's the wealth that we need. You know, and it it goes into you.
1: It's like the sunlight in your body. It's just yeah. warms you. Yeah.
0: That we didn't. That those of us relinquished didn't didn't get.
2: No. So anyway,
1: I appreciate your honesty about it all. And
0: I do too. And it sounds like this chapter is still, it's the next chapter still unfolding ever more to discover and work on. It's, it's like a never ending, is it just? so you know,
2: Well, one thing my daughter, <laughs> she said, a lot of things are coming up for her having a baby. Mm-hmm. As Right. I mean, they did, I'm sure with you. Mm-hmm. And. But she's talking about how it's really important for her to take care of herself. She said part of being a mother is to learn how to take care of yourself. I was like, "Mm, yeah, you're right. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Which is how you end up, how we end
0: up being so devastated with empty nest. When for me, my whole, I focused so much on him and not at all on myself so that there was this big emptiness when he was gone.
2: I know. And I think of myself when I think, well, what if you had just stayed where you were? I mean, honestly, I couldn't afford to live in Brookline (laughs) anymore. And I just think, oh, that would be terrible. But here I am just kind of keeping moving, like keep grabbing things in the shipwreck.
1: There's a lot coming, I feel, with this growth.
2: I said, well, a lot comes up when you have a baby, when you have a child. And I couldn't help but say, And it will, it will keep coming up throughout her life, even when you're old. Yes. I mean you think ding, it's done. It's it's
1: just
2: up. (laughs) It never is. It never is. So lots to ponder. It's been
0: so great to talk to you. And
2: well, thank you for having me, I feel like. I hope I said something. Oh, I mean, you said a I, lot. And just I was thinking of things that I wanted to say about long term reunions and stuff like that. But anyway,
0: all right. Really, really enjoyed having you. Very deep. Thank you. That's what I love about this podcast just the Me deep too. conversations and things
1: just unfolding as we speak. And while you're talking to us, I just was like, overwhelmed and absorbing all of this, what you're saying. And I was looking at Sarah and I was thinking, how we're both just like, I can see it on her face. We're just drinking it in sort of. It's a lot. I appreciate yeah, your honesty about it I all.
2: Don't how, I, don't how, <laughs> I don't know how we do it as human beings. I know it's like, what, (laughs) how do I do it? And it's just trying right now. I'm just honestly trying to, I mean, it sounds so stupid because yeah, but like really breathe and really myself
0: every morning before I get out of bed, I just, I find a 10 minute meditation and do it just no matter what I kind of make myself do that. That's very helpful. Staying breathing.
2: It's yeah, it's so much. I feel like adoptees are me jumping out. Yes, jumping yes out. Jump. My, my thing now is stay inside the fence. Yeah, <laughs>
0: oof, hard, not easy. Well, now we're new friends, so let's. Stay yeah, now, we, now you have adoptee friends.
1: Yeah, yes. and we'll be coming to Portugal, the CEO, <laughs> or France, or France, <laughs> or France.
2: This way okay, <laughs> that sounds good. Okay. Really
0: great talking to you, Emily talking to you. Two.
1: Thank you so Bye. much. Bye. 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 Wow, Sarah, that was really deep. That I mean,
0: really was. I really, really liked her and liked going to those places and getting further into the conversation, but just as an aside, like, wow,
1: with the bearing the Gloucester fisherman, <laughs> Right. I mean, just showing up in Gloucester, I feel at home and feeling, here and there's exactly. a fisherman. And I'm going to have babies with this guy. And then Barry. Appears. I know it's weird what we're drawn to. I really don't believe in the coincidence thing in life. I think there's a pull, some sort of deeper pull on us. And or
0: there's some sort of generational. Memory. I don't know if it's cosmic, but maybe it's yeah. genetic, you know, that just that's, inner DNA, that's how, you know, when I felt with New York city,
1: Oh my God, this is home. And, Turns and, out it was. And it was. And she's she's always been, he was his generational, how long they were there. I know. And then also that she's had a 30 year reunion with their biological mom, even though it's how she described it, you know, skating along the surface. Mm-hmm.
0: It's still yeah. a 30
1: year reunion. Yep. She's a neat woman. Just,
0: yeah, I, re- I really, really enjoyed it. Really I feel enjoyed like it. learned a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Me too. Well, this is another, what do we say? Another great episode. Another great episode. See you next time. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening today. And remember, if you'd like to share your stories or suggest any guests for our show, you can find us on all the socials at The Making of Me Podcast.
0: And again, we have a Patreon page so that we can continue to bring these great adoption stories to you. So if you want to find that and donate or contribute in any way, Find us at patreon.com searching adoption colon the making of me. Bye. See you next time.